Hi everyone, you're listening to EFG's podcast, Beyond the Benchmark. My name is Mo Zafsal, I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. Today we have a very, another very special guest, uh, Jason Trenet from uh, Strategis. Jason is obviously well known to uh, colleagues at uh, EFG, but Jason is the Chairman and Chief Investment Strategist for uh, Strategis. Uh, Jason, welcome. Thanks for having me, Mo. How are you? Yeah, very well. So let's go straight to it, uh, Jason. Um, in terms of your current market views, what, what are your thoughts on the market and, and what is your outlook for uh, 2022? What, what are the key themes that we need to watch out for? Well, I think, listen, I, I think if you're just starting with first principles, you, you, you have to start with the idea that fiscal and monetary policy will go from being excessively accommodative to being somewhat more restrictive. I'm not sure it's going to be a, a lot more restrictive, but that, that is a pretty big change. So we're going to have some fiscal drag in the United States um, just because we're not going to be able to repeat the amount of fiscal stimulus that we we did uh, in 2021. And also I think the Fed is, is vectoring towards um, ending their tapering, uh, ending their asset purchases by March, and we think they're going to tighten. So my view is that it's, I think a recession is extremely unlikely in the States. Having said that, it's going to be hard, in our opinion, to get market returns that are a lot greater than earnings growth, uh, just because uh, both short and long-term interest rates are likely to rise. Um, and then I guess the final thing, I would, we have much more of a, um, an inclination towards some of the value sectors, like energy, like basic materials, financials, uh, industrials, and we would be very careful on very high price tech for things that are trading as a, at a multiple of sales as opposed to a multiple of earnings or cash flow or things along those lines. You have your famous market balance sheet where you kind of look at the assets and liabilities, I guess, at any current juncture, and you're kind of weighing the um, the pros and cons of, of, of the market. Where does your market balance sheet uh, sit at the moment? So we have, uh, so we've been doing this about 20 years and it, it's just a way to, it, it's a, we do, we do a lot of checklists at our shop just to make sure we're, we're being honest with ourselves because you can have a, a, a view and then you get accustomed to the view and then you never check your, you know, you can go along without checking your assumptions. So that's why we do this. There's 16 characteristics, everything from sentiment to valuation, to monetary policy, to, trade policy, all these things that go on there. Uh, on an unweighted basis of the 16, we have eight assets and eight liabilities. So it's 50-50. On a weighted basis, it's actually positive right now. And that's mainly because money growth is growing. At, M2 is growing at 13% and monetary policy is still accommodative. So it leads us to believe the market, you know, has some more upside from here. It's just that the the amount of upside is probably somewhat limited, just given some of the things I said before about fiscal monetary policy. So let me let me um, unpack some of the earlier comments um, uh, that you make uh, you made earlier, Jason. So, um, in terms of the um, I guess multiple, you're expecting earnings growth to continue, uh, and essentially multiple compression, like we've seen, you know, in well, second half, we'll call it second hard half of 2021. Uh, you expect that general trend to continue, so the market is really a function of of earnings growth and, and maybe some sort of um, um, decompression of valuation as a result of that. 
Is that, is that a fair reflection? Yeah, it's, it, it's absolutely fair. And, and again, I think that we've been, uh, been very lucky to the extent to which I think our muscle memories are also a little weak in terms of major drawdowns in the market because liquidity has been so ample. I think it seems to me that we'll probably have to deal with more volatility in 2022. If, if, if one thinks that that liquidity will be a little bit harder to come by by the same token though, um, Fed funds rate is still zero and the real Fed funds rate is minus 4%. So it's hard to get particularly bearish uh, when you have those types of monetary conditions. No, absolutely. So um, one of the puzzles the, that uh, we have certainly at uh, EFG and, and with our client base is around um, long dated government bonds and why bond yields are where they are. In fact, 30-year bond yield up until a few days ago was the lowest of the year. In fact, <laughs> it looked the same as, you know, uh, um, October, November 2020. Um, what's, your, what's your view as to why, why that is the case, given the high inflation rates, the strong economic right. growth? Why are 30-year bond yields as, as low as they are? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's really been the widowmaker trade, right, is to kind of short long-term bonds. And we've thought a lot about it. We've asked ourselves that question quite a bit. The, the two strongest reasons, I would argue, are one is that the Fed has been simply just been buying 80 billion of treasuries a month, which it doesn't sound like a lot in the context of kind of what we've been doing recently. But this year, if the Fed kept on that pace, they would be 100%, more than 100% of the bond market. So given where the budget deficit is likely to come in in fiscal year 2022, uh, would, would probably be about $800 billion, the Fed would far exceed um, the, the level of issuance. So it's not insignificant that the Fed has been buying that much. The second reason, obviously, is that there's an awful lot of negative yielding debt globally. Um, it, at last, last I saw it, it was between 10 and $11 trillion. It was as high as $18 trillion. So that, in our view, acts as an anchor on why U.S. 10-year Treasury yields have a hard time moving uh, a lot above that. The one thing I can tell you, most from my perspective, that bothers me a bit, or just from a sentiment perspective, is that there's almost an article of faith among American institutional investors that the Fed cannot let long-term interest rates rise uh, because it would be too harmful uh, for financial assets uh, as well as uh, the budget deficit uh, in terms of interest expense. That worries me because I, I'm not quite sure, first of all, the Fed has that much control, and I'm not sure the Fed can move that quickly uh, to institute yield curve control without there perhaps being an accident first. And so most people are a little bit bearish on bonds, but it's very hard to find anyone in the States that has a 10-year Treasury yield at the end of next year much above 2%. Uh, which would still, in my opinion, be a, quite a negative, real long-term yield. Mm. I guess the debate is also around, uh, you know, peak interest rates. So certainly amongst the, the team here and, and actually um, other financial investment colleagues, they are really grappling with, well, what is the, what is the peak Fed funds rate? So obviously in the last cycle, we had 2.5%, obviously much higher in previous cycles. But last, right. last cycle was 2.5%. What do you think is a, is a realistic, uh, obviously a lot, a lot can change. What do you think is a realistic 
Fed funds rate peak you know, over the next couple of years? Well, so Don, Don Rispler, our chief economist, has done some work on this and, and has noticed that, that generally speaking, in the last several tightening cycles, the uh, Fed funds rate peaks at roughly where the 10-year Treasury yield is when the Fed starts tightening, if that makes sense. So right now, 150 is where the 10-year Treasury yield, uh, Treasury yield is. And the Fed is thinking about tightening. And so 150 would probably be kind of the outer limit of what we would see the Fed funds rate getting to over the next several years. Um, it's not the most scientific way of, of looking at it, but it, it, empirically it's worked. And I think um, the, the scientific ways are very difficult to use given just the meddling of, of central banks in the bond market. So it's probably as good a rule of thumb as, as any you can use. So 150 would be our our answer. So that that really puts as a peak interest rate is somewhere around 2023. That's right. I think that, uh, you know, if we're, um, I would say if we're, if we're lucky, right? I mean, I think that's probably, I think that's right. It's hard to see the, we, we're using two Fed tightenings for next year. Right. Um, I think it would be, uh, it, it would, I think it's going to be politically difficult for the Fed to tighten much more quickly uh, than that. Next year is a midterm election year. Uh, and the Fed is very worried about its own political independence, especially uh, given what's happened over the last year or so. And so I think the Fed's going to be slow. The Fed's usually late. The Fed is, I think, has more of an incentive to be late this time around as well. And in terms of um, the recent bond, bond yield moves, and I'm going to challenge you a little bit on one of the things you said yeah. a little bit earlier, uh, with the with the long end where it is at the beginning of the year, uh, in fact Q four of twenty twenty, that was when we had this, when we had if you like the um, the ARK ETF and the other call it um, uh, right. you, you know uh, stocks meme stocks the meme the stock, but when they started to have their I, I think the way you described it was stocks with very high price to sales so. Um, if I recall correctly, that's really Q4 was when those stocks really took off and peaked around, call it March uh, 2021. Uh, so we had this kind of six-month insane run on some of these stocks. But that's the same level where bond yields are today. So um, one of the things that certainly we've been challenging ourselves and saying, right. well, hang on a second, if bond yields are back to where they were when before these stocks had a big run, long-term bond yields and right. and obviously unprofitable companies is really about the sales growth and hopefully they'll make a profit <laughs> someday right. in the future uh, right. and, and you'd use your 30-year bond as your as your discount factor um, um, should we indeed expect maybe over the short term that those stocks will will actually be very strong given the 30-year treasuries where they are yeah i think i the, the uh, I would just say this. I we we're telling our clients to focus more on quality within the tech sector right. as opposed to um, the high flyers. I understand yeah. Yeah. that. I, I obviously understand the the, the mindset. Although I, I do think the the and the temptation. I do think though that Fed intentions and and inflationary expectations are very different today than they were. A year ago, right. right? So that even though the rates are the same, it seems to me the inflationary expectations have changed pretty dramatically. 
where there was still a sense at that point that any inflation would be transitory. And now I think there's much more of a sense that it may be somewhat more structural. So that's why um, be a little bit careful. We found one of the things that's been interesting is you look at FANG, you know, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, those stocks in particular, the, one of the things that makes this very difficult um, is that two of those stocks are in, in the technology sector, two are communications, one's discretionary, but or staples discretionary, but those stocks have defensive characteristics, um, which is what we found is that they've actually outperformed 71% of the time in down months since 2012. So that's what makes this, I think, particularly challenging. And, and those, those are, they're for not using it, using it pejoratively, but those companies are quasi monopolies. They have enormous cash flow, very hard to, and that's, I think, but one of the harder things to, to tease out is, you know, still being long those types of names, but not being long some of the SaaS names or some of the other things that are trading at sky high mm. uh, valuations. Yeah, no, I, I would certainly agree. I, they're, they're the new staples, right? So, uh, you know, yeah. uh, I guess you recall and you used to write many years ago uh, about the nifty 50. Um, and, right. uh, you know, there's certainly some, some overlap with that, with that era or the types of companies that everybody just goes to. Yeah. I mean, again, th these are, um, I, it's, I'm not quite sure why. Uh, I mean, and I guess there is a risk of regulatory risk yeah. there yeah. as well, but it's not, I, I think one of the things we saw this year was deconglomeration and it's not entirely beyond some sort of reasonable expectation that these companies might be worth more broken up than together. Yeah. Yeah. And so that makes it, I think, also uh, not so easy. And, and again, there, there'll be a lot of headline risk, uh, perhaps politically next year, but but also it may be the best thing for these companies as well. Mm. So um, I'm, I'm quite intrigued to hear from you in terms of what your investors are saying. So when we look at, say, Apple, you know, uh, maybe by the time this podcast goes out in a couple of days, it's already a $3 trillion company. But, <laughs> but, but you know, Apple's, right. Apple's at kind of $3 trillion or close to it. You've got the Russell 2000, which is $3 trillion. I mean, right. um, one of the sort of characteristics is certainly what we've been arguing. It's like these companies are just sucking away all the capital away from the rest of the market because they're just so big, so dominant, and continue to grow um, their market caps just astronomically. Um, is, there, uh, is there a real danger that we just end up with this or, or we may already be there, that we've just got a huge concentration that, you know, the industry itself doesn't bother with any, any small companies anymore. Yeah, I think we're, uh, Mose, I think we're already there. I mean, you know, if you look at those five companies are, I'm getting the number slightly wrong, but they're probably about 22 or 23% of the S&P 500. Yeah. They were as high as, I think at one point, 25 but so when you think about it, you're, you have 1% of the companies in the S&P 500 that represent about 25% of the market. I think, and this is, you know, this is always something people say that strategists like to say that it's, you know, stock pickers market. But I do think if you're a passive investor, um, you have to be very aware of the concentration risks that you're, you're taking that, that you're, you know, one of the reasons why people normally buy 
uh, an index is to modify risk, to diversify the risk. And, and the irony here is that you're actually are more concentrated than you thought. And, and so um, largely the direction of the S&P 500 next year will probably be in the same direction as those five companies. And yet I still think there are other, there are companies in other sectors that are far smaller that may be uh, large cap companies uh, by definitionally, but are, represent better opportunities uh, from here. So one of the areas that you've you highlighted as your overweights were kind of energy materials, which obviously in Europe you you can't say that, <laughs> right, right, <laughs> from an ESG perspective. Yeah. But uh, you know what, what you know what are the kind of pushbacks you get in the US? I guess you don't get any pushback. Uh, but what are the things that people are saying with respect to you know energy and and, and materials in general? Well, see, our, our rationale is that the, so one of the ironies, you know, it's, if you use energy as an example, so um, one of the ironies is that, let's say President Trump loves the energy sector, wanted to become a net exporter of, of energy, and did. Um, the irony is that it was terrible for the stocks because it, it, it fed into the worst instincts of people that run energy companies, which is to just punch another hole in the ground. Yeah. So um, it was good for the, it was good for consumers, but it wasn't good for shareholders. The irony now with president Biden, who is obviously not particularly enamored uh, of energy is that it's made the companies far better investments uh, because there are, are regulatory um, uh, impediments to drilling. Um, and so the, there is a lot more capital discipline on the part of the companies who are returning money to shareholders. Um, it seems to me, and without getting, without making a political statement about it, but I, I think that the pace at which uh, some of these environmental changes uh, that we need to make are being undertaken is going to create a situation in which energy stocks outperform and the price of oil stays higher longer than you would think. Which is to say, if, if this were, if there were a twenty-year plan, let's say, to uh, switch from fossil fuels to renewables. Uh, as opposed to a five-year or ten-year plan or something that seems to be at least politically where it's going, um, the companies might not be that interesting. But but given the the kind of almost uh, I would say religious zeal with which the, this administration at least is going after this, it, it it creates an issue. I'd say the same issue applies to basic materials where you know with, with fossil fuels are creating an artificial shortage. I would argue with with basic materials, some basic materials, particularly metals you're creating an artificial demand through the subsidies for electric vehicles, which are very dependent upon extracted materials like copper and manganese and lithium and cobalt and all, all the rest of it. So that's why we like them. Um, the energy sector is only 3% of the S&P 500. The uh, basic material is only 2%. Um, it, it, it seems to me that they, they'll vector back towards something higher. Than where they were. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. We we've had a l big debates about the energy sector in uh, in the team, and um, there are there are two sort of things that schools of thought. That I wrote a piece many years ago. I, I call it uh, "Energy: The New Tobacco," um, where right. where you know if you go back replay back in the seventies, where tobacco companies were you know used to blow a lot of money on marketing. Um, and you know, huge 
spending and uh, I remember when I was a kid, you know, you probably remember as well, you know, the, the Marlborough on the Formula One or the B&H on the Formula oh, yeah, One, sure. you know, and, and they were very expensive, expensive, you know, um, outlays. In fact, they were the largest advertisers at the time. And because they were banned from advertising because of uh, smoking regulation, all that money then came back as free cash flow to the tobacco companies. And obviously, as you know, they were one of the best performing sectors, you know, from the 70s and 80s onwards. Uh, so there's a lot of symmetry, let's call it that way. Uh, you know, I always kind of joke that uh, drilling holes in the ground is, and hoping that you might find oil because <laughs> you never, yeah. there's no guarantee, right? So, so right. You know, it's a huge amount of money you just waste um, and it's all shareholders' money, but that discipline is clearly a real positive. The only fly in the ointment, if I may, and we, sure. thought, we thought about this quite a lot, is that they, um, um, because of regulation, these companies have to have carbon offsets, or certainly in Europe. And that, in essence, means they, they, like BP or Shell, are going out and building wind farms and paying extortion amount of money to build wind farms so they can have the carbon offsets. And that in itself is... You know the reverse diluted, of capital, dis- right. yeah, dilutive capital discipline. So, so maybe U.S. companies are going to be different, uh, but certainly in Europe, one of the big challenges is is the amount of money they need to spend on on carbon offsets, yeah. and, and and that, if you like, takes away that capital discipline that would have been great for these sure. companies. Although, and if you go back, one would think that it would also keep the price of oil. Higher, longer, yeah. right? Um, so, That's fair, yeah. That's which right. then again might uh, filter back into that. I mean, I think there is a school of. Unfortunately, now after two years of a lockdown, you have people uh, tend to think, myself included, tend to think very conspiratorial, right? <laughs> and uh, I, and there is a school of thought out there that the, the only way, if if you're a true environmentalist, and the only way you can really get people to uh, adopt renewable energy is through significantly higher oil prices, right? That, you know, if $50 a barrel is not going to cut it. You, yeah. you need 80, a hundred, something higher, um, to get people to have an incentive to switch. Yeah. And I, I'm not, I'm not sure that's part of the thought process among the, the Western, Western governments. Uh, but, um, I'm sure there are some people thinking that way in, in these administrations. Mm. Or, or tax it, right? That's, the, that's, right. Uh, that, that's probably, <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. That, that, that's, although very, very unpopular in the US. You can't win an election yeah. if you tax on, on, no. on, on fuel. No. <laughs> Climate change, you know, I would, you know, I, I say this half joking, but not, not really. You know, I'm kind of saying the quiet part out loud. You know, for most people in the United States, you talk to them about global warming and they're all for it. You know, they say like, it's too cold where I live. I'm, I'm like, uh, it is not, if you look at the, uh, the election issues in 2020 of the 16 major issues that were cited as, as things that people were thought about when, when voting, uh, climate change in the U S was 15 out of 16. Mm. You know, so it's, it's the economy, it's national security, it's healthcare, it's education. All those things are now climate change is on the list. It's just, it doesn't, it is different culturally in the States to the extent to which it does not rise to that level of concern uh, for most people uh, in, in the States. So just a couple of things that, that were on my list to, to answer Jason. First of all, 
call it the return of the retail investor. Um, uh, what are your thoughts around that? Uh, is it just passing interest or do you think there's a renewed interest from the retail investor investing in stocks? Well, I think I, there's clearly a renewed interest, although I, I tend to think as you and you and I have been doing this about the same amount of time, I tend to think the interest, you know, acts with a lag with performance, right? So, um, and that's, that's the only thing that worries me a bit. The, the good news is I don't see a major decline um, on the horizon. So I, I do think there are a lot of younger people, certainly with the ease with which one can trade now and that makes, it increases the incentives and certainly the financial incentives have been there with some major gains. I do think though it will wax and wane with the performance. And, and so I, I do, I, I think it's a good thing that more retail investors are involved. Um, I, I doubt, though, that we're going to see prolonged periods of what we saw earlier in the year of uh, kind of the meme stock mania and, and, and all the rest of it. it. It would be interesting, although unlikely. I mean, it'd be interesting if people, if retail investors really, and, and when we talk about the new retail investors, you're largely talking about what they say in the, call in the U.S. next gen or mm. young, you know younger people, mm. um, is that they're very obviously enamored of the technology and they're very enamored of um, uh, of new things, of innovation. Um, one wonders whether the new retail investors, though, will gravitate or, or perhaps not towards things like financials or energy or basic materials. It, it doesn't seem like it, uh, but that would be that would be an interesting phenomenon. It seems to me. Mm. Yeah, it's 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 quite interesting. We we we've been sort of focusing on and just having a look at the demographic changes so you know if you go back during the financial crisis and remember coming out of the financial crisis it was all about the millennials who are going to live going to live in town and right. you know had we're going to uh, an important cohort of people now gen uh, you know millennials are 10 12 13 14 15 years older uh, and the their wealth um, has grown significantly so uh, the savings that the millennials had just after the financial crisis was something like $150 billion to some of the studies mm. we've seen. That number is more like $15 trillion today. Mm. So they've become very wealthy in their habits, investing habits, etc., are driven by their experiences over the last 12 or 13 years. I, I recall you know, thinking back to the 80s and 90s and looking at the statistics when you know, mutual funds st first started, and we yeah. had Magellan and all these other big funds that suddenly became, you know, um, everyone's kind of focus. You don't really have that today. Um, you don't have that same type of phenomena today. Uh, maybe you have a few hedge funds, but, you know, but, but they're still old Not school. Really, you're right. Yeah. yeah, you don't have the, the kind of, the, the, Peter Lynch was a god. Exactly. Uh, in, in the 80s. I mean, he was, he almost personified uh, this. I mean, and today most people couldn't tell you who, I'm not sure I know who runs the Fidelity's Magellan Fund. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, I mean, but that, that's, uh, people know Kathy Wood. Yeah. They know Ark. Yeah. But, you know, aside from that, I think uh, there's a general sense, and this may be a certain arrogance on the part of retail investors, is that they, they can do it better than the professionals. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it's, it, it's been partly true because professionals have to focus a little bit more on risk yeah. and creating a franchise, whereas a retail investor can really just go for it and, and it, it's worked out. 
so far. We don't know yeah. how that works out in the end. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, well, we, we have to wait for a bear market or a difficult market condition <laughs> exactly. to, to shake that uh, to shake that one out. So a couple more things, um, uh, Jason. One of the you know reports you've you've been writing about um, has been sort of China's investability. Um, and one of the challenges they've had, obviously we've seen all these ADRs basically collapse as fears of regulation and, um, and obviously pull back from, from, um, from Chinese regulatory authorities on data and so on and so forth. What is your thinking on that? Are people just, I'm never going to touch a Chinese ADR ever again? What's your, what's your thinking and sense around that? Yeah, so I think there's still, so if you deal with, so we have a wide variety of clients. If you deal with investment consultants, uh, outsourced CIOs, pensions or endowments and so on, they still want to have positions uh, in, in China. Yeah. But I, what I found is that there are more of the principals that are asking questions about what they own. Right. And they're finding that they, if you include the private equity portion of their holdings, they may have a lot more exposure to China than they had realized. Right. And so that's been my personal experience on a couple of investment committees that I'm on where people start asking some harder questions and they say, well, gee, I really, I'm not going to be too, um, too eager to add more to my public holdings because I actually have more exposure to China than I realized where that question wasn't really asked before. I, and I, I'd be very curious, um, in, in Europe and generally what the feeling is towards China, but it's hard to emphasize how, how much the, the, the public's attitude towards China has changed in the United States, mm. which is five years ago, it was largely seen as a partner, an economic partner. Um, and now it's at, at best, it's seen as a rival and at worst an enemy or, or, or a, a great challenge. And so, um, it strikes me that that's going to be a, that's going to that's going to be a nagging issue for Chinese equities, and then people are also asking questions about the structure of how they own these companies and how much how much recourse they have if something were to go awry, right through the VIE structure and and, and, and all the rest of it. Yeah, and and to be honest, it's, it's sensible corporate governance, right? Uh, because the structures are always, you know, under scrutiny and under under question. I, I remember being. Uh, in, a, in an investment meeting, oh gosh, I'm thinking about 10 years ago when these first things came out and, and uh, you know, uh, I think even the Hong Kong regulator wrote a piece to say that these structures are, uh, you know, are questionable. Uh, and I think this, yeah. this is all starting to unravel, uh, you know, before us. And, uh, um, you know, it certainly has caught a lot of people out given, you know, the strength of these companies historically. Um, they have really fallen from their perch and obviously they're all, relisting back into to Hong Kong with probably better, cleaner corporate structures than they had, uh, you know, before. A, 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 a before. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's a very, very interesting point. I think generally speaking um, in Europe, um, you know, people are still actually quite positive on, on, on China, China growth. I think also the investment narrative has changed as China A-share domestic markets have opened up through the Hong Kong Connect uh portal it's much more easier now to to allocate to some of the best companies listed in china on the on the domestic exchanges um and then the need necessarily to go and have you know, like the old dinosaurs with questionable you know structures right. uh is is necessary anymore and uh, and that's caught a lot of people out because the weightings 
for um, for these companies in the indices was significant, was really, really big. And so any passive investor has been really caught out with these, uh, you know, with these a regulations and then uh, and then uh, the the structures themselves. So, yeah, very, very, very interesting point. Um, I guess any conversation at the moment you know, can't ignore kind of cryptocurrencies. We, we did have a little bit of a, <laughs> a chat just before you came on yeah. about um, kind of cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, obviously another millennials and Gen Z, probably more Gen Z um, favorite uh, investment. Um, what's your, what's your thinking about, um, you know, cryptocurrencies? Um, uh, what sort of pushbacks do you get from, from, uh, you know, your investors or, or, or people that you, talk to in the industry? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, certainly the institutional community in, in the States has been very slow to adopt it, um, although they're looking at it very closely. I, I wouldn't, um, I think crypto, generally speaking, and Bitcoin in particular, is is probably one of the greatest speculative instruments of all time. Um, and with money growth growing at about 13% year over year, I do think that the biggest risk to crypto uh, to Bitcoin or other private cryptocurrencies, unregulated cryptocurrencies is that they will be regulated because policymakers, every treasury department and every central bank tends to view them as an existential threat to their own power to exert monetary policy um, or have control over uh, the economy. Um, So Ken Rogoff, as an example, has been very, outspoken about the uses of cash. He, he wants to ban cash uh, because it's, uh, it's, it's from the standpoint of a government, uh, government worker is dark. You can't track it, can't tax it. Um, it doesn't seem to me if you don't, if you don't like cash, you're not going to like Bitcoin. I think the end game eventually is that all the central banks will have their own cryptocurrencies uh, and that will remain a challenge. So I don't think you can't regulate it out of existence, but I, I, I do think one of the risks is that policymakers are going to make it as difficult to, to use as, as possible. And so um, as, as a medium of exchange. Yeah. I guess the biggest challenge is, is that the bigger banks that are call them systemically important or the ones that have deep regulatory connections are probably going to be regulated out of it. (laughs) Um, Right. And then it, it essentially then opens the door for middle tier, smaller companies to to basically rule the roost uh, because they will be lightly regulated on a, on a relative basis um, and obviously gives them the advantage. Um, uh, if, and I suspect crypto is not going away, um, you know, there is a, a relative competitive advantage that develop because the larger companies just won't have the access that uh, the smaller companies will have. Oh, that's a, it's a very fair point. And I think, I think in all, you know, sadly, from my point of view, that this is, this is why we have a Washington office. So we spent a lot of time on regulation and we spent a lot of time on what policy is doing. And when I started in business 30 years ago, it, there wasn't a lot of heavy duty discussion about what regulators would do. Um, and if it was, it was more in terms of antitrust or it, it, it wasn't, um, as ubiquitous as it is now. And now it's, it's technology. One of the great benefits the technology sector had is that it was largely off the radar of regulators for a very long time. Uh, it was seen as clean. It was seen as 
really. And, and now that's starting to change a bit, at least in the States. Um, but um, I, I tend to agree with you. If you can, if you can kind of stay out of, off the radar, uh, the more you can stay off the radar, the better. Yeah, certainly around, uh, around this topic. Um, so, um, so just in last uh, couple of questions. So at the moment, obviously, you see many, many clients. You talk to many, many people. What are the sort of biggest pushbacks you get relative to your views? And, you know, what are the kind of more interesting themes that, you know, that you don't necessarily publish in your, in your normal work? I, I think the, the greatest pushback we get is that we have a, a very strong bias towards value versus growth. Right. And, and the U.S. is still very much of a growth market, right? About 29% of the S&P 500 is in the technology sector itself. And then if you add communications, healthcare, and some other growthier sectors, you're looking at 60 plus percent of the market. So there is an institutional bias against value right. uh, because it hasn't worked for so long. So that is a, a pushback that we get. I think, as I mentioned before, I, one of the things that worries me a bit is that there's an almost, uh, people are taking it almost as an article of faith that long-term interest rates can't go up in the States. They're, they're viewing that as essentially it's gonna stay between 150 and 2% forever. Uh, and I think if that were to change, and, and certainly given where the inflation rate is, it's, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that you could see uh, a 10-year treasury yield beyond 2%. I think that would change people's perceptions a lot about how they're, how they're investing. So that's the places where I see the most kind of disconnect or pushback uh, as, far as, um, as far as what we're, uh, as what we're saying. Um, I think international too is maybe a place where uh, I I think there actually may be somewhat more opportunities in international equities than a lot of I, I think a lot of a lot of U.S. investors have largely given up on international investing because they tend to think the correlations are quite high and the risks are greater. Um, I, I think now, just given the valuation differentials, there's actually maybe more of an opportunity, particularly in developed international. Uh, than where most American investors um, see the opportunities. Mm. It's interesting that this year in particular has been very, in some respect, uh, you know, on an unhedged currency basis, the outperformance of the U.S. has been quite violent even. It kind of reminds me of 2013 <laughs> where, you know, uh, I guess the dollar-euro rate, as, as, as we record, is, you know, about 8% um, you know, down yeah this year so even if european equities have actually performed quite well not as good as us but once you adjust for currency the returns are less than half of what you achieved in a bull market year this year but yeah and i i tend to agree next year you know you do f think that there's going to be more evening up of that um of that trade um particularly on a, on a dollar basis so yeah i would certainly you know go with you on that one um and and in terms of I guess themes out of the normal sphere that you that you uh, that you see anything really interesting that, as I said, you probably haven't written about or that you've come across some some observations that uh, that that uh, intrigue you. Well, I mean, I think I have to think a little bit more about it. Nothing is too off. I would say nothing is too off the beaten path, but perhaps for maybe for European investors, I, I still am very much of the view. Uh, as anathema as this seems to people, that, that populism um, and certainly right of center populism is still going to be a major player. That Brexit and, and Trump and those are not 
one-off occurrences, mm-hmm. that there are structural reasons why those things happened. And that there, I, I think particularly next year with the midterm election in the United States, it seems like the temperature is actually increasing, if you can believe it, not decreasing. Wow. And so that is something that I, I, I'm not sure what, what that means precisely or from an investment perspective, but uh, it may not partic- be particularly favorable for either inflation you know, or um, uh, it might, or corporate profits. You know, it might be even if it's right of center populism. There's going to there's a general sense that um, the the system is rigged for the um, for the elite classes versus the middle class, mm. and uh, that's true among a lot of conservatives as well. So mm. that, that's just one thing I would continue to to think about. It's that um, as as much of uh, a disaster as the Trump administration appeared at the end, um, he still has a lot of support in the United States, or at least the policies have a lot of support. So, um, and again, people people don't like that, but but it, it it's something that I see very clearly uh, just traveling around in the in the states. Mm, yeah, that's a very very good point. Um, I, I think it's probably likely. I would have thought, and certainly odds on are that the. Uh, you know, the Republicans take um, the House uh, that seems to be, a, I would say, a very high possibility at this point in time. Um, so it does mean that that, uh, that um, politics is going to be continue to be quite fractured. <laughs> I, think you're, I think so. I think you're absolutely right. And actually, you know, uh, we have a lot of emerging market elections coming up uh, next year. So in, in Brazil, there's Peru and there's Chile. All those things have been suffering the same type of you know, um, uh, far right, far left. There's nothing in the middle. Right. Same with the UK. Um, you know, uh, it seems to be these things. And obviously we've got French elections as well, which right. they're going to have their challenges. So, you know, I was going to say your, your, uh, your, your, uh, family home in Italy may be the, the most stable place, which is something that. Exactly. Who could have thought that was possible? But, uh, yeah. well, well, Jesse, listen, thank you very much for, for sp- spending the time with us today. It was, uh, as always very interesting. Uh, you know, we're great friends with, uh, with strategists and obviously we have Dan coming at our conference in again in Wonderful. January and, uh, you know, and again, thank you very much for your insights over the years and, uh, and have um, a great holidays and all our best to all at Strategius. Yes, thank you. And my best to everyone at AFG. Thank you so much for your business and your friendship and partnership. So that was Jason Trenard from uh, Strategius. Obviously, as you heard, um, very thoughtful, very insightful. US strategist, obviously very well known in the uh, Wall Street community and obviously very influential. So uh, thank you very much for listening to the podcast today. Um, We are going to be winding down our uh, podcast. We'll have one more fitting in and and maybe a bit of a a highlights reel for 2022 as we go into the year. So next week we will um, talk a little bit about EFG 2022 Outlook. Uh, on the podcast and uh, we um, uh, hope you listen in thank you and enjoy your weekend